It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am very excited to welcome back to the show my good friend, Anthony Honorino. Anthony, as people know, is a speaker, blogger, extraordinary sales leader, and now I can add author to that list because Anthony's new book is coming out called The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, which I think is a great marketing title because now known by our books, just yours. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> so welcome back to Accelerate. Uh, thanks for having me back, Andy. <laughs> yeah. So you said there will be sequels, though. There will be sequels, okay, of course. Good. Yeah, it's not the only sales guide, but all right, perfect. So, you know, for people that maybe haven't heard one of your previous uh, episodes or appearances on the show, maybe just a brief introduction of yourself. Sure. I uh, I write at thesalesblog.com every day, and I send out a newsletter every Sunday. I've been writing there since December 28th, and I still have an interest in some businesses, so a lot of what I write is practical application. It's strategic, but it's also tactical. And uh, it's because I built a, a, a relatively good-sized business with very few salespeople, and it's some of how I know what I know. And I spend a lot of time speaking and doing workshops and traveling around helping salespeople and sales organizations. Very nice. Yeah. So, and people should go back and listen to episode 11, way back at the beginning of Accelerate. That's a, lot of, a long time ago. That was a long time ago. We've, as we record this, we're already like you know, episode 210. So by the time this airs, we'll be close to 300. So uh, way back at the beginning, Anthony was there at the beginning and talks about his very unique start in the sales business. I'm not going to give it away, but people need to go listen because it is one of the most unique stories about how he got his initial sales experience. But So let's, let's talk about your book. So what was the driver for writing this book? Other than the fact that you've got 6,000 blog posts that you've done and you have a lot of material, but, but what finally got you to the point of writing the book? I, I wanted to write this book for a long time, but honestly, I had conversations with publishers and they would say things about, you know, a very, very small advance and what they wanted from a book. And the first publisher I showed the content to, the structure of the book, they said, we don't get it. And we, we don't understand why you would have a sales book that has things like self-discipline in it or or why you would have optimism or caring or resourcefulness or initiative. What, you mean and, human emotions? Yeah, yeah, all of the human attributes that allow you to succeed. See, right. They're like, you don't even get to selling skills until the second half of the book. And I said, well, that's because without the first half, you don't need the second half. I mean, exactly. it does. I could give you the second half, but you can't do anything with it. And then I had other publishers who came to me, and I, I basically couldn't find a value prop in publishing with them. And they said, you know, we can get you attention. And I said, well, I, I get it kind of a lot of attention. And they said, well, we could probably help you get speaking gigs. And I said, well, I get, I get gigs, it. I yeah. get speaking gigs. I'm, I'm pretty good, but what else can you do? And uh, I didn't hear much. So I decided at that point, I'm going to write the book myself and I'm going to hire somebody to be my editor. And I went out and I hired uh, Ted Kinney, who started with me, but he got bogged down with Disney work. And I found uh, another person, an editor, out in California, Barry Fox. And I, I went to Barry and said, listen, I, I write, I need help with the editing. You're going to be my editor and I'm going to self-publish on Amazon. 
And the reason I wrote this book is because I want to serve salespeople. I want to give salespeople something that they can use to improve the results. And mostly the publishers wanted me to write something that would say, let us help sales leaders and be super consultative and come in with a big consultant's book. And there's, there's a lot of books like that out there, but I wanted to write a book for the rep. That's what I wanted to write. And I took it into my own control to say, let me give them the nine attributes and the eight skills they need. And then we'll go from there and decide what comes after that. But that's why I wanted to write it. I wanted to give the salesperson a tool that they could use. And honestly, you, you've seen the book, the 17 chapters. It's also a good lens for a sales manager to say, where are my people struggling and how can I help them with each one of these individual attributes or skills? Yeah, no, I think a lot of the books that are written nominally with sales managers in mind are, yeah, have a lot of stuff in there for, for salespeople and vice versa, right? So, right. All right, so talk about why you wrote it. So one of the questions that just sort of the driving question you talk about in the book is, is why do a few highly successful reps consistently outperform the peers and, and their peers? And do you have an answer for that? Well, I do. And I'll tell you what the, the central premise is, you know, I think that most of us think that it's situational. It's, oh, it's they have this product or they have this territory or they have a really hot hand right now because the market likes them. And the truth is, and you know this as well as I do and better probably, Andy, is that when when you go into a sales organization, it can be a commodity organization with almost no differentiation and they'll have salespeople who are killing it. Mm-hmm. And you can go into another organization that has extremely high differentiation, great value prop, terrific uh, quality. It should be really easy to sell. And 80% of the sales force is still lagging. And that's because sales success is personal. It's, It's individual. And it's something that you can control. And once you understand that it's in your control, you can start taking action to say, I can develop myself in areas that will allow me to succeed where other people are struggling. And the reason the book starts with the attributes first is because I think the first thing is, who do you have to be to be someone worth buying from in the first place? Mm -hmm. So a lot of these attributes are personal. It's how do you show up and who are you when you show up? And then we can get to skills and you need both sets of these things. But I put the mindset first because no matter how good you are, if you're not a person that people want to do business with and you can't create a preference for you and your offering, then selling is going to be very difficult for you. So let's get the big piece on mindset straight first and then we can go into the skills. Yeah. I don't want, and you know that I believe this from having read my books and you wrote the forward to my last book is, is yeah, the first line of differentiation is you. Right. Right. And, you, as you as a member of the audience that are listening to this in a competitive sales situation, especially if there's any sort of, you know, you're selling a product of which you've got a lot of competitors. Yeah, it's not what you sell. It's how you sell. It's you. You're the difference. I've got a big slide that I use in my presentations that says you do understand that you are the primary value proposition. Mm-hmm. You're the biggest part of the value prop. And I don't I don't think a lot of salespeople have been told that as directly as I'm telling them and you tell them. And I think they think that the product is supposed to do the heavy lifting for them. And in a world where we are being more and more commoditized and there's more pressure I, I don't think that that's going to be true. We have a good product. Competitor has a good product. We have good services. They have good services. We can come up with a good solution. So can they. 
And you know, and if you don't believe that your competitors are a threat, I think that's a mistake. They're good. They're working hard too. They have smart people. So you have to, you know, I always hear people say this or I see it on Facebook. It's a, a little meme that says something like, the only person I want to be better than is the person I was yesterday. And I like the sentiment, but you better be better than your competitor today <laughs> because you have to go and compete against somebody who's already pretty good. So you better figure out how to beat that person too. Yeah, you need a greater sense of urgency along with that. So yeah, it, it um, you see these, you know, it's all, you talk about the, the products and commoditized, but there's also there's this sort of growing sense in certain sectors of the business that that it's the process that's paramount. And again, sort of seemingly obviates the need for people to be really good at this what I call the last mile of selling. You know, between the the person and the and the prospect, the sales rep and the prospect, that's still the ultimate where things happen. And you can have you can have all the science you want, but at the end of the day, it's still a person selling to a person. When we're recording this, I just got back from the Sales 2.0 conference where I was the closing keynote speaker. And I sat there for two days, actually starting at the speaker's dinner. And a good part of the conversation, and by a good part, I mean almost all of it, ended up being around predictive analytics, mm-hmm. artificial intelligence, things that we can count, how we're going to disintermediate uh, salespeople in these sections of the sales process early on, what we can automate. And uh, when I got on stage, I was able to say, you know, you've had a lot of this conversation, but now I'm going to tell you that from my view, sex is still better than sexting. And what we're dealing with are human relationships. So psychology is more important than technology. And we're trying to win hearts and minds. And that's a very different game and one that does not lend itself to automation. And uh, I, I got their attention and I got them to lean forward. And we had a different conversation, one that I think is more beneficial. Not that Great, technology great, is great not metaphor, important. by the way. I love that. Sex is, sex is better than sexting. Absolutely. I, I have yet to find the counter uh, argument. So far, I can't find any takers. <laughs> Are you looking hard? Have you tried Anthony Weiner? <laughs> I have not. <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah. So, let's, you know, you talk about three things. Mindset, skill set, toolkit. So, we've covered mindset, skill set. So, toolkit, what's the elements? So, what are the elements of your toolkit? The, the toolkit is the things like your sales process, your playbook, the tools that you use. And I think there's a great case to be made to give people tools. Sure. But I think it does come at the end because I see sales organizations do different things. Some focus just on skills or predominantly product. And some focus just on giving them the tools. But without the mindset and the skill set, the tools don't work. And so the magic combination seems to be mindset, skill set, toolkit. And to, to, to try to accommodate some of that, we have a workbook that goes along with the book when you order it or when you come out to theonlysalesguide.com to try to replicate some of what a toolkit is. But we put exercises or questions that you can go through at the end of each chapter to, to try to say, how do I turn this into something that I can use right now? And that's the most, that was the most important thing to me in writing this book, Andy, was I wanted an actionable book. Mm-hmm. You know, And I've read books where people give advice like... Um, you know, if you're not motivated, you should kick your own ass. And I'm not, I'm not really sure how to do that. Um, but I know that if you're not disciplined, making a list of two or three disciplines that you keep every day, you know, can transform your life radically. And, you know, so we, we talk about how to do those kinds of things. Or if you have a bad attitude, I know that 
simply being grateful, you know, and taking time to capture those thoughts can help change your mindset. And so there's a lot of action oriented sections of the book, which uh, the publisher liked as well. We think it's going to be really helpful for people. It's almost a field guide in some ways. Yeah, well, it is the only sales guide you'll ever need. True. <laughs> until well, my next book comes until out. Until your next book's out, then and forget in, until, that one. Until your next book comes out as That's well, right. right? Yeah, well, hey, maybe mine will be a companion piece to yours. So, um, so let's talk about some of the elements that you had, of the 10 elements that you have in the book, That uh, 10 elements, 7 skills. So competitiveness, I thought that was an interesting one to, to talk about, is... You know, sales, you have to have this burning desire to be the best in sales. I mean, if it should, doesn't mean that you're ruthless, doesn't mean that you're not empathetic, you don't have the people skills that you need, but you have a desire to be the best, as you talked about before. Yeah, I, I think there's different types. You know, there's a healthy competition and there's an unhealthy competition. And so there are, are different ways that we look at competitiveness. And I think that the the reason that competition is so important and there's a lot of uh, a lot of talk out about you know we should be collaborative we shouldn't worry about our competitors but selling is still a zero sum game i mean i win or you win i get the sale i get the business or you get the business so i do think that it's important that we play to win and we have to be what I would call a, a, a strong competitor, where I'm trying to be my best and I'm trying to create greater value than anyone else. I'm trying to create a strong preference instead of being somebody who I would call a, a weak competitor. And this is someone who says, I'm going to try to find a way to cheat the system. Right. I'm going to try to find a way to take down my competitor by saying bad things about them rather than trying to build up my my credibility with them or creating a preference for for me and my offering when you know there there are you know market in in, in some markets there are laws to prevent that kind of competition you right. know in financial markets but in in the area where most of us compete you know we just need a better plan for how do we analyze that competition how do we make sure we're playing our game and that we're competing where we're strong and where we're they're weak and how do we make sure that we use all of the weapons at our disposal so that we can bring everything to bear and win like every contest matters? And in my view, it does. I think it's important that we create a preference and we win, but especially the deals that are with what I call dream clients, the people right. who we could really, truly create the greatest value for. Well, I think a, a great perspective on, on competition, I believe aligns with what you talked about, is, is I always remember from Vince Lombardi. I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin at the time when the Packers were at their heyday. And Lombardi was criticized, you know, a great football coach at Green Bay Packers, criticized for having too few plays in his playbook. You know, sweep right, yeah. sweep left. And his point of view was, yeah, let him, you know, we've worked this to perfection. We've practiced it till it's perfect. Let him try to stop us. And so he didn't really, he cared. But he, on the other hand, he didn't really care, right? Because we're going to go do what we need to do. We're going to do it to the best of our ability. And we're mindful of you, but, but you're not forming what we do. You, the competitor. Yeah. Yeah, and you have to. I, I think he might have been the one that said, or it's another football coach where they said, you know, you keep running the same place. When are you going to run something different? He said, when this stops working. Yeah, well, that was him too. All right. <laughs> yeah, and that that's it. You you do what works for you. And so if you're if you're a boutique company that's super high caring, high value, high trust, high intimacy, be that. And when you're competing against somebody who's global with a massive footprint, don't pretend like you have that. Just be what you are and compete that way. And, and where you find people who want 
high value, high caring, high trust, high intimacy, you're going to win. And where you're not supposed to win because you're not really what they need, then you're not going to win those. But you need to compete where you're strong. And that means you need to target and make sure you're spending time where you can win. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's really, that's why I started my company in the first place years ago, back in 2000, is, is yeah, we had, I had had great success being a small company selling, as I said, sort of the high-touch, high-caring against huge competitors. But it only worked in certain circumstances, but you need to, but you've got to identify those circumstances, you could win quite handily. Easily. And, yeah, so, uh, that thing that's sort of interesting about competition, because, I see a lot with some of the, especially some of the sales technologies and some of the apps and so on. There's everybody wants to put in the gamification aspects to it, and to me that's sort of like applying external motivation to to a rep. Where really a rep really needs is internally motivated as opposed to externally motivated. Uh, what's your thought on that? I, I'm I'm ambivalent on gamification right now, and I would like to believe in it more. But to, to your point, I haven't seen it replace intrinsic motivation. And I think what, what we're trying to do because we have technology, right, is we're trying to automate things that shouldn't and can't be automated. So we think the gamification is fun and we think it's interesting. But I just wonder if that's it, – it seems to me like a very shallow substitute for purpose and meaning and giving people a real mission to work towards and uh, if I'm wrong about that, we're going to have salespeople who are out um, finding a way to chase Pokemons so that they can get certain a number of points to prove that they did something. You know, I was wondering if Pokemons <laughs> were to, cold wait, calls. Wait, yeah, way to, way to bring that into the conversation. <laughs> yeah, if a Pokemon was a cold call, would they pick up the phone and dial because they want to get Pikachu? Right. I don't know. But yeah, it, it seems to me, I, I think that people really want more meaning in their work. I think they want more mission. I think they want to know that what they're doing is important and that they're making a difference in people's lives. And I think that that counts for more than gamification. But it's I think that because we have technology, we're using it and we're trying to automate things to find a, a way to apply technology to some of the human problems that we have. So in the book, you talk about competitiveness driving value creation and sales. So how does that work? If, if I have to beat you in an opportunity, the customer has to get more value from what I'm selling than he or she does from what you're selling. And so basically the contest that we have is I have to find a way to create greater value and get a greater outcome. And then you have to find a way to create greater value and a greater outcome. And so basically competition, the reason it's so healthy for society, from my view, collaboration's healthy too. I mean, there's two sides to this. But the, the competition's healthy because we all continually raise our game. We're all continually getting better. We're continually putting together new ideas and new solutions and innovating. And that only happens when there's competition. So you have three facets to competitiveness, desire, persistence, or what you call heart and action. So break those down for us. Some people just have an innate need to win, and they want to win so bad that it allows them to take action where other people won't take action. And so that desire, that burning desire to feel like it's a, it's a fight that you're supposed to be in and you're supposed to be trying to win is important. Um, the second thing with heart, you know, it, it, it's tough to hang in there in sales, especially when you're competing and it's difficult and you know you're behind the curve already. And you lose sometimes. And so a competitor, you know, I the way I think of this, selling is more like the UFC or MMA than it is boxing. I mean, in selling, you're you're not going to be 10 and 0. 
that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You're going to be six and four or seven and three, and you're going to be killing it. Well, yeah, you could be four and six and be killing it. You could be four and six and killing it. There's no doubt. But you do lose, and you got to have the heart to just stay in there and continue to compete and compete and compete. And then the action part of this is, you know, the, the thing about people who are strong competitors is they do what's necessary to position themselves to win. So you've probably seen this. I've seen it a lot. A salesperson, they say they want to win, but then they don't make the follow-up call or they need to go in and have more meetings to create greater preference and spend time with stakeholders. But that sounds like a lot of work and they've already told us that they like us and they've asked us to give a presentation, so I think we're okay. But somebody who's competitive will say, I'm going to pull every lever because I want to make sure that there's no doubt I want a knockout. I don't want this to go to the scorecards. I don't want the judges to decide who wins this content. I want it to be uh, unequivocally me who wins. Mm-hmm. And I think all of those factors are, are critical for somebody to be a strong competitor. So at the end of the chapter, you talk about your action plan. So you have three ways to ignite competitive spirit. So first one you have is play your game. So what do you mean by that? Um, what we talked about, if you're, if you're a small, nimble player, be that. If you're a big player with a global footprint and you're deeply process-oriented, be that. So figure out what your business strategy is, know how your competitors compete, and then play the hand that you have. So if, if that's your hand, play it and play it strong, because ultimately that is how you win. And when you try to be something you're not, very difficult to win. Yeah, and a perfect saying I always remember from one CEO I worked with is, is grew from a self-funded startup to a multi-billion com- dollar company. It was uh, in the early stages. Well, yeah, how do we how do we survive? And he said, "Well, we're just a mouse. We don't dance with elephants." <laughs> good, good call. Yeah. All right. Next one: study your wins and losses. Yeah, I love this section, and uh, I'll tell you why. Because I love football, and in a football game. Wait, you live in Columbus? You love football? <laughs> it's a it's Shocking. a religion. It's Shocking. a religion here. This is like the Vatican for Catholicism. Now, you know, d- it, did you go to the Ohio State University? I did not. I went to the Capital University across town. Okay, so but you're like uh, you've become one of the it, one of, it, it's one of them. A, it's a law. It's a law. Okay, you have to be a Buckeye, regardless of where you're. Okay, go ahead. You know, they, if you play a football game on Sunday after the game on Saturday in college football, everybody goes into a room and they watch the films. Mm-hmm. And so what, what worked? What didn't work? What did we think was going to work? And what did our competition do that prevented that from working? And what happened? And there's a lot of analysis. So they go through play after play, play by play. What did we do? What worked? And we don't do that. In in the military, they do that. It's called an after-action review. Whenever there's any kind of a conflict, everybody sits down to get a view from everyone about what changed. But we don't do that enough. We we work on, okay, what's closing this quarter? So let's talk about how we win that deal. We never talk about how we're going to lose that deal or what should we have done earlier in the process. And when you go through studying your wins and losses, and not just your losses, but your wins too, you get some idea about if, if I could start over again, what would I do? And now how do I apply these things to the future opportunities that I'm working on? So it's painful to go back over losses. I mean, some of them, especially when you think you did everything right and you deserve to win. But if you go through those and you start asking the questions, why did this occur? What should I have done different? You can at least start to say, I'm going to run that play different or I'm going to look at the different choices I have uh, in future scenarios. 
Well, and I think this is a good exercise to do with someone else, though, too, because get somebody else's perspective on it as you, you walk through your wins and loss analysis. And I think that that's right. And even if you can do it in team meetings, it's even greater because you do get different perspectives and different views. And you also get different, what I'll call situational knowledge. You know, well, this is another choice you might have. And sometimes this works or we had this and here's how we dealt with it. But it's very helpful to do that like a team. Yeah. Well, and increasingly, too, there are some technologies that are now coming onto the scene that enable you to record calls, uh, not just telephone calls, but uh, a company like Spearfish has a system where you can actually record your calls in the field. And if you have something like that, I mean, again, it's just beginning, but that's another way that actually becomes actual game film that you can look and listen to. Little, little painful, but worth it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like watching yourself on film, right? So the last one then was leave no weapon unfired. The, th- the thing about competition and this desire to win is that sometimes we stop short of doing what we're doing because it can be inconvenient or it could be difficult or because we're following a process and we're not thinking outside of the box. And then afterwards, we, we come up with this moment where we say, you know what I think I could have done? Then if the time to do that is before you lose. The time to think about what else is available to you is earlier in the process. So, you know, when you think about weapons being unfired, could you have brought a customer in to tour their facility or brought your prospect to a customer site to see what you're doing? Could you have brought in somebody from your leadership team to demonstrate your company's commitment? Could you have changed your proposal after you got feedback in a presentation to say, you know what, we want to wipe the slate clean. We found two new ideas and we think this is better. Whatever it is, pull out all the stops and do, do it now because when you lose, it's too late to do anything about it. It's really hard when your client awards your competitor the business to say, wait, we, we have another thing to show you because they don't want to pull that award away from a competitor. And I, I think that if you think widely about what are all the choices, what have we done in other cases? And if you, if you just continue to rework your offering and think, I can do more, I can change this, uh, I think that you can make a, a difference. I know you can make a difference. You, you can go back and have a better opportunity because you're doing everything in your power. And I mean literally everything in your power, whatever that takes, to make sure that you win. Yeah, two things that come to mind when, when I was reading the book and thinking about that is one is too often reps feel constrained by the process that exists, their quote-unquote sales process. And yeah, your book is, is more geared toward outside reps, field reps, and so at least in my mind, correct me if I'm wrong. Sure. Um, but but you know, if the more complex sales process you have or more complex product you're selling, the longer the sales process, the longer the buying process – um, yeah, you can't really have defined steps because you don't know what those defined steps are going to be as as the deal continues. So you can't be afraid to, as you said, really innovate. You know, think outside the box and think really being the operating word is is continually sort of ruminate about what are the opportunities that exist for you to do something different to demonstrate the value that you're going to bring to the prospect. In in what we do, selling is a complex, dynamic human interaction with unlimited variables, right? Mm-hmm. And so we, we can build a process and we can say there are certain outcomes, but outside of that framework, there's thousands of possibilities to do something different and thousands and limitless, really, uh, scenarios that we might have to deal with. And I think that that's right. We have um, many occasions where 
we're selling and we have a process that says the next step is to do X. And when that works, that's great. But sometimes it's it's not a map as much as it is a GPS. And we get to an area where the GPS says, um, I'm sorry, Andy, but turn-by-turn directions are no longer available in this area. And we spend a lot of time where directions are no longer available in this area, which is why in the book we have attributes like resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. You, ha- you have to figure it out. And it's your job to figure out what's next and not to feel constrained, just to know that you have a piece of the map, but not the entire map. And remember, a lot of what we have going on, the, the, the real map, the real terrain is inside somebody else's skull. And we're trying to figure out what that terrain looks like and how we make a difference there. Yeah, well, and getting back to what you sort of talked about before and leaving the weapon unfired is when we think about sort of uh, you know design thinking or innovation thinking is is experiment. You know, when you're in a situation, in a sales situation, and there is no precedent and no one can tell you exactly what to do, you know, don't swing for the fences. Is experiment with something smaller to say, okay, is this and say, okay, what was the impact of that? You know, that get us going in the right direction, or do we need to take a step back and try something else, another direction? So I think I I have something like that in the chapter. I think I have something about iterating. Yeah, you know, okay. um, perfect. Just uh, iterate. Keep, right. keep trying different things. You may not get it right the first time. That's okay. Yeah, but if you don't try, and, and for me, the big thing is, with too many reps is especially when you're selling more complex products. It's it's if it's it's not a nine to five job. You know, you've, there's got to be a part of you that some ten percent of your brain that's always processing, thinking about those things because requires a lot of lot of thought and deliberate thought and horsepower to come up with ideas. It's the hardest work we do thinking. Yeah. So this last segment of the show, I've got some standard questions to ask all my guests. And since you've been on the show before, I had to come up with new questions and. Uh, so the first one is, and these you can give me one-word answers or you can elaborate. In your mind, is it easier to teach a technical non-salesperson how to sell or teach a salesperson how to really sell the value of a product or service? I think that it's easier to teach a salesperson to, to sell the value. I think it's much more difficult for a technical person, and uh, mostly because they are constrained by their technical knowledge, which ends up being really, really useful and interesting only to people who care about technology. And outside of that group of people in in a, a major sale anyway, n- no one really cares. They care most about the outcome. Okay. If you could change one thing about your business self, what would it be? If I could change one thing about my business self... I wish that I was more understanding sooner about how important it is to be directive with the people that work for me and uh, in and, and, and organizations. And what I believed for a long time was that you give people really good ideas and you help them grow and they want to grow and they're going to read and they're going to study and they're going to work really hard to apply these things themselves. And that has been nothing but a world of disappointment and pain for me. And they want help and they want to be directed and they want you to help give them answers and not only be non-directive and making them think of their own answers, but they need help growing. And I've for most of my life underestimated how much help. Great answer. All right. What's one non-business book that every salesperson should read? 
The Lucifer Principle, a scientific expedition into the forces of history by Howard Bloom. Okay. Gosh, people are going to think that I gave you that question ahead of time, and I actually didn't. Um, okay. The Lucifer Principle? The Lucifer Principle, and it, the subtitle is A Scientific Expedition into the Forces of History, and it's by Howard Bloom, who is a scientist, but who has a very interesting life. He was the the owner of the Bloom Agency, so he was the PR person for Prince, John Cougar Mellencamp, Aerosmith, ZZ Top, Michael Jackson, and dozens of other names like that that you would recognize. Got it. All right, that's gone on my list. All right, last question for you is, are buying decisions based on logic or emotion? Buying decisions are based on emotion, and we rationalize to determine the logic after the fact. And so how should that change how you sell? You need to create a preference for you and for your solution. And you need to understand the driving human needs that are causing somebody to want what they want and why they want it. And then you focus on making sure that they get those human needs met so that you can create a preference for you. And no matter what your offering looks like, you have much greater odds because they want what they want and you're the one that's giving it to them. Like it. Great answer. Okay. Well, good. Well, Anthony, thanks for joining us. Tell people how they can find out more about the only sales guide they'll ever need, or actually called the only sales guide you'll ever need. They can go to theonlysalesguide.com, or you can find the book on uh, amazon.com and uh, barnesandnoble.com. Excellent. All right. Great. Remember, people, this is I've been with our guest, Anthony Anarino, talking about his new book. I uh, urge you to go out and read it. Uh, make it part of your sales library. So, Anthony, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. And friends, remember, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And subscribing to this podcast is an easy way to do that. Make sure then you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Anthony Iannarino, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.